Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on digital assets and cryptocurrencies and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Paul Zuma, Chief Investment Officer for J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So today, Paul, we're going to be discussing a topic that has caught the attention of investors and the business community, really not just in the United States, but more broadly around the world. And that topic is digital assets and cryptocurrency. So in terms of the roadmap for today, I want to begin by touching on a couple of high-level topics, just talking through, you know, what is the blockchain, what are cryptocurrencies, and how do we think about allocating to these assets within the context of diversified portfolios? And then following that, Paul, I want to bring you into the conversation and learn a little bit more about what you're doing in the space and how you're taking advantage of some of the volatility that we're seeing in the current environment in an effort to add alpha. So with that as the roadmap for today, you know, I think it's important to recognize that the rise and subsequent fall over the past couple of months of Bitcoin has certainly caught a lot of investors' attention. And, you know, one of the questions that I get more than anything else is, is this a bubble? And when people ask me the question of, is this a bubble? To me, bubbles, when they pop, they never reinflate. And one of the things we've seen from Bitcoin specifically is this element of resilience over time. You know, big run up in 2017, things came back down to earth, bounced around a little bit. Another big run up in late 2020, early 2021, obviously followed by a 50% decline in the price of these assets. But, you know, the fact that they are resilient, the fact that the bubble didn't pop and the value didn't go to zero really suggests to me that these are going to be around for the foreseeable future. And so on the one hand, investors need to understand exactly what's going on in this space. But at the same time, investors need to also understand the different strategies that they can implement to take advantage of some of the volatility that has obviously caught so many investors' attention here over the past couple of years. And, you know, what's also interesting is when I talk to clients about Bitcoin and crypto, people love to say, well, the value is in the blockchain, right? But then you begin to press them on it and they don't really have a good answer as to exactly why that is the case. And so, Understanding the blockchain, I think, is an important place to start any conversation around digital assets and cryptocurrencies. And, you know, effectively, a blockchain is just a database. And a database, fundamentally, is a collection of information that's stored electronically. The biggest difference between a blockchain and a traditional database is that a traditional database structures its data into rows and columns, Think about a table or a sheet in Microsoft Excel. Blockchain, on the other hand, perhaps hence the name, structures its data into blocks. And so very simply, all blockchains are databases, but not all databases are blockchains. And obviously in the current environment, you really see blockchains being used to store cryptocurrency transactions, but there are a number of real-world applications that we believe exist as well. And there could be huge improvements in terms of trade finance, very secure way of storing medical records, a way of tracking voting records over time. The real world use cases for the blockchain, I believe, are pretty significant. And again, you know, that's where the value really lies, is moving away from some of these crypto assets and thinking about the real world economic application of this way of storing data. And so how does a blockchain work? Well, the way that it works in the current environment is that a new transaction is entered 
into the ecosystem of computers that store the blockchain. That transaction is sent to these computers, which work to solve an equation to determine the validity of the transaction. And this is where the blockchain is decentralized. This is where you hear a lot about proof of work. And I think we'll touch on some of the sustainability issues with proof of work later on during our conversation. Once a transaction is deemed legitimate by the network, so it's received 51% approval from the computers in the ecosystem, those legitimate transactions are clustered into blocks. The blocks are then chained together and the transaction is therefore complete. And so, you know, that's how the blockchain works. The other thing I see people tripping themselves up on is, well, what's the difference between cryptocurrency and traditional currency? And I personally don't really like the term cryptocurrency. I think of them more as being crypto assets because to me, one of the biggest differences between say the US dollar and Bitcoin is you can only use Bitcoin to transact where it's accepted. And that's a limited number of places. You can use a US dollar effectively everywhere in the United States. And so from an economist's perspective, if a currency is a medium of exchange or a store of value, I'm not sure that a lot of these cryptocurrencies, crypto assets necessarily check all the boxes here at the current juncture. But there are a number of differences between traditional fiat currency and these crypto assets that are obviously front of mind for so many folks. In terms of who manages it, these crypto assets are managed by the computers that are running its open source code. You think about a traditional currency, well, that's being managed by the government that issues it. How does it hold value? I think that this is a really interesting area to discuss. A crypto asset, its value is going to be purely based on supply and demand. I mean, it's worth whatever somebody will give me for it at any given point in time. You think about the way something like the U.S. dollar holds value, and it's really based on confidence in the issue, right? The full faith and credit of the U.S. government, if you will. How is it secured? Well, the network of computers obviously verifying every transaction secures crypto. Third parties like banks secure traditional currency. And then perhaps the most obvious one, are there physical bills or coins? The answer to that is no in the crypto space. And although they are not used the way that they once were, I do still have a couple of dollars in my pocket for when I find myself someplace where they won't take my credit card. So we've talked a little bit about blockchain. We've talked a little bit about how crypto differs from fiat currency. Bitcoin, as an example for kind of crypto more broadly, and I know we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the differences between all these various tokens. But, you know, Bitcoin is just one example of a crypto asset. And I actually kind of segment Bitcoin from pretty much everything else in the digital asset and the crypto universe but everybody talks about Bitcoin. So what exactly is it? And, you know, the Bitcoin ecosystem, if we start there, is really just the group of computers that are running Bitcoin's code and storing its transaction history, storing its blockchain. And when it comes to keeping balances of Bitcoin, um, they're kept using keys. And the way that I think about it is, you know, Paul, if you and I want to engage in a transaction, I'm buying something from you and I'm paying you with Bitcoin. I need to know your public key. That's kind of like your bank account number. And then you have a private key, which is kind of like an ATM pin that allows you to access those funds once they've been transferred. Bitcoin, and I think a lot of people know this, is released into circulation through mining. Every time a new block is added to the blockchain, miners are rewarded with six and a quarter Bitcoin. And that number will have for every 210,000 blocks that are created. The most recent halving was on May 11th of last year, again, currently getting six and a quarter Bitcoin per block, but that will continue to decline as more blocks are added to the blockchain. And then finally, people always ask me, well, how do I get my money out? 
And it's not as simple as walking to the Forex window at JFK and saying, here's my Bitcoin, now give me some US dollars. You need to use something called stable coins in order to make that transition. And so first thing you need to do is take your Bitcoin, again, just as an example, transition that into stable coin, which are going to be digital tokens that are backed one for one buy things like US dollars, and then you can convert that stable coin into the end currency that you desire. And so there are a lot of nuances here that I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of. And the final point that I want to make before turning it over to you, Paul, is really about how all this ties into portfolio construction. You know, the blockchain, it's interesting. I do think that there's value there. Bitcoin is a dinner table conversation. It's important that we understand the way that it works and the way that it differs from traditional currency. But how does it fit into a portfolio? Well, if we think about traditional portfolio construction, and we assume that mean variance optimization is the approach that most investors take, you know, the optimal allocation is going to be based on estimates of future return, future volatility, and the way that the asset will interact with the other parts of the portfolio. And, you know, the reality about these crypto assets is that it's very difficult to come up with an estimate of expected return, given that price action is purely based on supply and demand. Volatility has been through the roof, and that creates opportunity, Paul, for guys like yourself. But forecasting what the volatility of Bitcoin is going to look like over the next 10 years, I would argue, is a bit of a fool's errand at the current juncture. And then furthermore, when you look at correlation, you know, the correlations with equities, with gold, with high quality fixed income, they're extremely unstable over time. And so, you know, I don't think that there's a right number when it comes to adding crypto to a portfolio, but I think that there are a lot of interesting investment strategies that are being created around the crypto universe. And that's really where I want to take our conversation from here. And so, Paul, bringing you in, to talk a little bit about what you're seeing, you know, let's just start with the 20,000 foot question. So there's tremendous amount of fanfare around what's going on in the digital asset space broadly. What makes you so excited about the opportunity that's been created amongst the universe of digital assets? Yeah, great question. So at a high level, I'd say to a large extent, I'm excited for many of the same reasons that several others or many other people are so apprehensive toward the space. So what do I mean? I mean, if you take a step back and you, I think we would all agree what the market represents at this stage is it's a nascent market. Clearly there's high levels of volatility. It's challenging to understand. You know, it's speculative and there's a number of issues, some of which have been solved, some are still outstanding regarding custody and potentially fraud. And I think because of those issues, the path of least resistance for many investors is to dismiss it. And on one hand, I appreciate that stance. That said, on the other hand, I can't help but see the parallels between many of those observations and similar observations that were made toward the hedge fund industry when I started in business in 1995. And back then, and I think will prove to be true this time around as well, it's true those risks are real, but through structuring and proper due diligence and thinking about sizing, proper sizing in portfolios, you can put to bed or at least mitigate lateral's risks. And for the hedge fund industry, it turned out, you know, 1995, it was one of the best periods for the hedge fund industry. So if you took the path of least resistance but on the sidelines, it was a mistake. But kind of coming back to digital assets, again, many of the characterizations are true, nascent market, volatility, challenging to understand. And again, to most people, that screams of risk and marks the end of the conversation. I acknowledge those risks, but what screams to me is inefficiency, opportunities, and potentially asymmetric return. 
So you have to look at, you know, what is the returns out there? How much alpha is out there? And does that compensate you for the risk? And again, can you mitigate those risks? So I think the approach is important and sizing is important. I think that those are great points. And you said the magic word that everybody loves to hear, particularly in the environment that we've been in over the past 15 months, and that's alpha. And so when it comes to alpha generation, what types of investment strategies are you seeing in the crypto market today? And what are your thoughts about the ability of those strategies to generate alpha here going forward? Sure. It's an excellent question because I think when a lot of people think of the space, they have too heavy of a focus on associating digital assets with a kind of simple, long-only investment in Bitcoin. And, you know, Bitcoin is the first use of blockchain, ultimately may prove to be a valuable store of value. But I think there are far more interesting ways to gain access to the space. So let me take a step back and kind of describe how I see it. First, there's an active versus passive choice. Do you want to have passive exposure to Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, other major tokens? And if so, how do you gain access? Today, there's no ETFs that are authorized in the US. There are some in Canada. So for many U.S. investors, one option is investing through investment trusts. That being said, pricing is a bit elevated there or through private bank kind of dedicated vehicles. And I think that's a reasonable way to take a long-term view on digital assets or specific tokens. But again, I lean heavily toward more actively managed side for sure. Again, why so? You know, at a high level, the less inefficient a market is, the more opportunity there is to add value through investment due diligence and structure. So there should be material alpha. So I'd break the approach into three different areas. The first is venture. And within venture, I'd really distinguish kind of two different approaches. The first is traditional revenue-based models. So, uh, you know, Coinbase being, I think, the most prominent, just listed recently. Other exchanges out there are like your list, Kraken, Gemini, also funded with VC markets. Other things like Bitmain, which is focused on Bitcoin mining, Dapper Labs, others. Really, really profitable early stage. And the second part is just early stage projects that ultimately result in coin launches. The second category I would note is liquid arbitrage. And let me describe some of the arbitrage that are out there in the marketplace today and some that was used in the past. So first thing I would just highlight quickly is something called triangular arbitrage, which is really setting up trading relationships across tokens on different exchanges, trying to capture small pricing dislocations across those exchanges. Second thing I'd highlight is arbing some of the investment trusts that I just mentioned. So like Grayscale Trust was one that was being arbed. It was trading at a premium. And you could kind of arb that premium or capture that premium by borrowing shares of, say, Bitcoin, pledging that to the trust, waiting out the vesting period, and then ultimately liquidating that back and capturing a premium. And then lastly is basis trading. I think, you know, we're familiar with basis trading in other markets. So long cash versus futures, because futures tends to trade at a premium. But the return potential in the crypto markets is really like two, three, four, five times that of what we see in, say, the fixed income markets. So again, all different ways to express relationships and not necessarily directional relationships, but kind of more relative value relationships. And then the third category I'd mention is just liquid token trading. So trading tokens and coins, so to speak, in liquid and kind of semi-liquid fashion, say the top 30 or so coins, you could do so long only, you could put hedges against it in long bias way, also use derivatives as well. This is what's so interesting to me is that, you know, there's this obsession with Bitcoin. And as you put it, Paul, most people think that that 
simply entails taking a long-only approach to an asset class where price changes are purely a function of supply and demand. I mean, there are ways of capitalizing on this volatility, taking advantage of the universe that's being created. And that's where I think the interest from the institutional investors that I speak with is really stemming from. You know, they don't necessarily have a view on the underlying assets themselves in a lot of cases, but they understand that there's an opportunity to apply investment strategies in a way that generates alpha, which certainly doesn't seem to be available across many other public markets. And so Absolutely. given the growth in the interest here and the growth in the number of strategies that you're seeing in that space, how have you seen the investment universe grow over time? And what are some of the issues that you see if we continue to see this very robust pace of growth going forward? Yeah, as you can imagine, it's been really robust. So, you know, you don't have perfect data on this, but in the last year, you've seen assets double, probably the number of funds have doubled as well. I think many people would be surprised to learn that there are about 800, if not more, crypto-focused funds in operation today. What I think people would not be surprised to learn is that most are not institutional quality at this point, nor investable necessarily. So if you ask the question, how many are above 100 million in assets, it's probably 10% of that, kind of call it 80-ish. That being said, it's still a reasonable universe to work with. We've certainly identified a number of high quality, what we would describe as institutional quality firms across venture and liquid hedge fund side. In terms of scalability, we often ask how scalable is it? I think it really depends on the strategy. You know, so Tesla and Michael Strategy, I mean, they've invested $2 billion, I think it was each, in Bitcoin, kind of passive long only. So there is ability to put money to work. If you want to kind of follow what I was outlining before, which is more alpha-driven approach across venture and liquid assets, I think, you know, you're looking at, say, $500 million that you could comfortably put into the space today. And of course, that's going to increase as volume increases and the breadth of liquidity across different coins increases as well. I think that it's interesting to hear you kind of lay out the way that the universe looks today and specifically the fact that there are really only a handful of strategies that are actually investable when it comes to the bite sizes that a lot of our clients need to take. And so another issue that is very front of mind here in the United States, obviously in Europe as well, is the issue of the carbon footprint. And, you know, a lot of the folks that I speak with who are anti-crypto, they'll say, well, you know, in 2019, there was more electricity consumed mining Bitcoin than there was in the entire country of the Netherlands. And so how do you think about that issue of the carbon footprint and ESG, particularly given all the momentum around sustainability across the investment community more broadly? Yeah, it's certainly an important issue. And I think that it's definitely one that's highlighted in the press and thrown out there by the naysayers. But I would suggest it's overstated for a couple of reasons. You know, as you kind of outlined earlier, the ESG issue really comes from Bitcoin mining and transaction processing because of proof of work, right? So solving the mathematical problems, they're in a right to update the blockchain. And while it's widely understood that that is kind of an energy hog, what's less known is that about 40% of the Bitcoin mining is actually generated from renewables, which is more than the power grid itself. And also there's a case to be made that a material percentage is utilizing excess energy from the grid, which otherwise would be wasted. So those are important facts I think are lost. That being said, you know, is that where I want to fight the argument? Probably not, because... I think it will continue to be in the forefront of people's mind, and sometimes logic doesn't always prevail. So to me, what is more convincing is just going into proof of work versus proof of stake. So 
The reality is that a large number of major coins use proof of stake rather than proof of work. So, you know, Ethereum is moving toward that, Polkadot and others are kind of there today. And proof of stake is just a alternative validation mechanism. So it's much more straightforward. It requires one one hundredth the amount of energy consumption that proof of work does. And again, I think more and more will go toward that. And this issue, while important today, will likely not be an issue three years out because of the movement toward proof of stake. That's a very reasonable assumption, I would agree, for what it's worth. And the more people that I talk to who are firmly ingrained in the crypto space, whether they're working for a company that provides the infrastructure or looking at the assets themselves as investments, that proof of stake issue keeps coming up. And that definitely seems to represent the broader direction of travel. And so maybe just one last question before we bring things to a close here. I think we're going to have to have you back because there's a lot more that we can discuss about this universe of investable assets. It feels a little bit like the Wild West. You know, the volatility is extreme. It's unregulated effectively. You're seeing the regulators begin to sniff around to an extent. What are your thoughts on regulation? Would it be good? Would it be bad? And really, more so than that, what's needed? As somebody who's looking at this space every single day, how do you think regulation can help and how do you think it can hurt? Great question. You know, do you want regulation? I think we do. Of course, it depends on what type of regulation. And it should be noted that when there is some sort of regulation, actually, crypto markets tend to rally. So as a whole, I'd say crypto markets want regulation. I think one thing that's certainly clear is, you know, not only because of the ESG, but because of this issue as well, digital assets have a public relations problem in a sense. And I think that regulation would actually help in that regard. So let's take the issue of fraud and most recently ransomware, where digital assets are used as payments. I think if you polled people and said how much of an issue it is or what percentage is fraud and ransomware and related of the total, I think people would say, you know, 20, 30, 40%. The reality is, I mean, there's a very comprehensive analysis on this topic. It turns out it's 3%, which, look, anything above zero is not great, but like 3% is very manageable and similar to what we see in the non-crypto side. So I think regulation can do a large role in getting that number lower and certainly making sure it doesn't grow. So, you know, just KYC-focused regulation, and client onboarding would definitely go a long way in cutting down some of that illicit activity and would be welcomed by all. Yeah, well, it seems to me like that's likely the direction of travel. And clearly, this is a space that is in constant flux. So more than anything, thank you very much for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did as well. And again, I think we're going to have to bring you back because there's a whole lot of other stuff that we can unpack about digital assets here over the course of the months and quarters to come. So Paul, as always, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate the conversation. Look forward to joining again. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Thank you. Recorded on July 14th, 2021. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, 
figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, U.K., Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial